You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Jared Sandler here with you, and we are getting ready for episode 31 of the Just a Sec podcast and excited to bring you today's episode. It is with a Hall of Famer. It is not every day you get a chance to chat with a Hall of Famer, regardless of the discipline. And today's conversation is with the legendary baseball scribe, Jason Stark. Jason grew up in the Philadelphia area. He cut his teeth in the Phillies clubhouse. And shortly thereafter, he became a national fixture in the baseball scene. I don't know if this is what he's most known for, because I don't want it to take away from his overall contributions to the game as uh, illustrated by his Hall of Fame induction a few years ago as the recipient of the J.G. Taylor Spink Award. But Jason comes up with some of the most bizarre, crazy, off-the-wall stats, nuggets, trivia questions, whatever. If it's rare, he finds it. And it is fascinating. And I've loved following Jason's work from the time I first was old enough to consume baseball content up until this day, and it was awesome getting the chance to talk to Jason about the growth in his career, dealing with a Phillies team with Pete Rose and Steve Carlton and Mike Schmidt. When Steve Carlton, one of the key players and most notable players on the team, hated the media, confrontations that he's had, going to ESPN, transitioning to TV, getting laid off late in his career, but still finding that second win. We talked about a ton, and I would certainly, certainly appreciate if you would share this with some of your fellow baseball fans or people who you think might be interested in this conversation. And, of course, I'd certainly appreciate if you would just share all these interviews in my channel with your friends, and I'd love for you to subscribe. It's free. All you have to do is click a button. Go to youtube.com slash SandlerJ1, or you might already be on the YouTube page right now, you just click subscribe. It's easy. It's free. You're not going to get spammed or anything like that. And, hey, if I come up with something that you might think is interesting every once in a while, it's just going to be easier for you to find. So think it over. Uh, maybe think it over during this interview. But here we go. It's time for my conversation with legendary baseball writer, episode 31 of the Just a Sec podcast with Jason Stark. All right, Jason. So I always like to start with a question about someone's childhood and growing up. And I think I read that uh, writing for you was an early interest and, and maybe your mom was a writer. So how would you describe your introduction to writing and, and the development of, of that as a hobby and then eventually into a passion? Yeah, I'm, I'm one of those lucky people who is walking around the face of the earth who was doing exactly what I always dreamed of doing from the time I was old enough to dream about doing anything. Uh, seriously, nine, 10 years old, I was not dreaming of being a baseball player or not dreaming of playing pro sports. I was dreaming of being a sports writer. And this is a true story. I, and I've told this many times, told it in my Hall of Fame speech last year, but I've got a, a, a photo hanging on my wall of my sister and I walking home from school. I, 
we think I was in fifth grade and she was in fourth grade. And underneath it, there is, so she framed this photo. Underneath it, there is a composition that he, she wrote for her class in fourth grade. And it actually says in the composition, if you wanted to know a lot about baseball, my brother would be able to tell you. I was 10, right? But that, that really was my dream. Um, my mom was a writer, June Stark, a great writer. She worked for a time at the old Philadelphia Record where Red Smith worked. Uh, wrote about entertainment news, and then after that paper folded, she spent years as a you know as a freelance writer and publicist, and you know she had a lot of writer friends. She read every story in two newspapers every day, and if there was anything that she knew I had to read, she made sure that I read it. So I grew up reading the great sports writers of Philadelphia, and it just infused in me at a really early age that this would be a cool. Thing to do with my life. And the other story I tell all the time is totally true. Call my sister. She'll verify this. I would go to games as a kid with my binoculars and not train the binoculars on the field. I would look at that press box trying to figure out what the heck everybody was doing in there. And like, it's probably a good thing I never found out. <laughs> it might, might have changed everything, but that seriously is what I wanted to do. It's where I wanted to be. It's where I wanted to watch games and write about them and live this incredible life I've been so lucky to lead. Jason, what is it about baseball you think that has drawn you to that sport, to this sport, as opposed to perhaps others? Um, I mean, I, I do love all sports. I'm not a big hockey guy, but I, I really do follow and care about all sports. But baseball for me is the very best sport to write for so many reasons. Uh, one is there's just, there's a constant variety of outcomes and weird stuff that can happen any given moment on any given night. I, like my mom always told me I should write a book and call it, I never saw that before. I never wrote the book, but I've had a I've had a whole career of writing those pieces of that insane thing that happens that you think, when's the last time that happened? And sometimes you find out, oh, well, Babe Ruth and Luke Gehrig did that in 1926, you know, or it happened a week ago, but it hadn't happened before that in 50 years. And just all those things, uh, the infinite range of possibilities. I love that about baseball. Uh, and it, is, as a companion, it's just the fact that you can connect the dots between that thing you're watching right now in this moment to what your father or grandfather or grandmother or uncle or aunt once watched in a whole different time and place in the 30s or the 20s or the 40s or the 60s or whatever. Uh, all of that is possible. Um, I love the fact that in baseball, I really mean this in a good way, Jared. We can get to pace of play at some other, some other point in this discussion if you want. But in baseball, the dramatic moments hang there. They, 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 time freezes in the night. And all right, let's, let's use the Rangers. Uh, Adrian Beltre is at the plate. Tie game, bases loaded, ninth inning. And all right, he, he's, he's facing Mariano, 
whoever, right? And this is like this is why you came to the park that night for this moment. And it there's no 24 second clock. You know, this this confrontation, this duel could go on for three minutes, five minutes, seven minutes. You never know. And like I love in those moments, especially if I'm at a, a big postseason game, I try to take in everything around me. Uh, just not just what it looks like and what happens, but what it feels like. I look at both dugouts and try to get a, a sense of what they're feeling. I look around the field at every defender and who you know who's shifting from one foot to the other foot at a nervous tension. I look at the seats, I listen for the sounds, and I try to to take notes on all of it and capture that moment because what it feels like is such an important part of the story when you get to tell it. So there's all that about baseball. You know, it's it's a great thing when time stops in those moments. <laughs> Not so much in the in the bottom of the third, <laughs> right? When the guy won't get in the box or the pitcher won't won't throw a pitch. But in those moments, it's awesome. And then I think the other cool thing about baseball is we have such great access in normal times. Not this year, but you know, you get to build relationships with people in the game, people in clubhouses. I'm always walking into clubhouse houses asking if I don't know already who's the funniest guy in the room because I want to pick that guy's brain and get to know him, you know, and I'm always looking for people who are, who are funny, uh, bright, think differently about the game, allow me to think differently about the game, make me laugh. I can make them laugh. And then I can write stuff that makes people who read it laugh. Um, so there's all of those things about baseball. That's a long answer, but it really does sum up my favorite things about my line of work. I, I don't mean to follow up with this and suggest that I didn't take anything out of the, the, the first <laughs> part of that answer. I'm just curious, who's the funniest player that you've come across or, or, or someone who really stands out? That like, that's an impossible question because there's so many, like I, you know, I, uh, I, I co-host the Starkville podcast with Doug Glanville. Doug is in the argument. He's one of the smartest funniest most inventive people i've ever known the only only player i've ever known who used the phrase time space continuum to describe <laughs> a week where they had like two hour rain delays every week so and then we just did a, education yeah right a former rangers great by the way that's right and then just just yesterday I've, for our podcast we had uh, Jim Deshays and Lynn Casper from the Cubs stop by. And JD is one of the funniest people I've ever known, ever covered. I mean, I just talked to him last week for a piece I was writing about the fun of pitchers hitting that were going to be denied by the universal DH. And like he actually said at one point, look, I know all the reasons, all the arguments for the DH. I just think they're dumb. We, we have lots of good hitters in the sport. We need more bad hitters because <laughs> that's just entertaining. You know, like when the bad hitters do something cool, it's like the punter making the game-saving tackle. And so he, he's in the argument. But, I, like, I, I literally have a list of 50 people in the game who just make me laugh the moment I lay eyes on them. Seriously. Jason, I, we were talking before we started, and I, I shared my relationship with Eric Nadell and, and how instrumental – he was for me as, as I was trying to figure out what 
this whole broadcasting thing was and whether or not it was for me and, and just kind of going through uh, that journey. And, and I think I read that you maybe had a, a somewhat similar relationship with Stan Hockman, who was a, a longtime writer. What, what can you share about that relationship and maybe how it, it influenced you as you were uh, a young writer and, and maybe even, I think it, if I remember, maybe even started before you were actually doing this professionally uh, maybe I'm wrong on that, but but, but no, about right. that relationship. Yeah, I, I had I had two incredible mentors uh, early in in my life and times, and Stan was one. Peter Gammons was the other. Um, Stan was a guy I really admired growing up in in Philly. There were so many incredible sports writers in Philadelphia who made you laugh and made you think and made you realize you, you could write about sports in a way you can't write about anything else. Um, and I would write to these guys, just hoping somebody would actually take some interest and Stan would write back always, every time, you know? And so I could ask him all kinds of stuff. He would write back, you know, he wouldn't write me a book, but he would always answer my questions and always think about the answers and always care about it. And, and that kindness really stuck with me through my my whole life and my whole time as a sports writer. Um, you know, later I came to work in Philadelphia, got to know Stan, and his kindness never stopped ever. Um, that's just the kind of, it's the kind of human being that he was. Uh, sadly passed away just a few years ago, but meant so much to me and so many people in the town. It just, it just the fact that he wrote back to me told me something, how important it is to pay it forward. And I have tried to do that as much as I can. Um, like when I just got into the Inquirer in Philadelphia, I got a letter from a, this is pre-email, right? I got a letter from a 12-year-old kid named Tyler Kepner, who said to me, I want to grow up one day and do what you do. And my brother and I put out this monthly baseball magazine. I'd love for you to take a look at it. So I said, sure, send it to me, you know, wrote, wrote right back to him. And um, I read this thing, this little magazine, and I wrote back to him and said, you could write for a major American newspaper right now. You could cover baseball right now. He's 12 years old. And then Tyler, you know, by the time he was 14, he was coming to the park doing interviews. Uh, Bob Costas subscribed to his newsletter and uh, the commissioner of baseball. And they were writing about him in SI for kids and, like now he's the, the lead baseball writer at the New York Times. Like that, that's cool. And so I won the Spink Award. And when you win the Spink Award, you are honored at the New York Baseball Writers Dinner. Tyler Kepner introduced me at that dinner and read from the letter I wrote him back about how great it is to be a sports writer, to be a baseball writer. Read, his mother saved it. He read from it to a packed ballroom at the New York baseball writers dinner. And so just think about what it means to people. If you're just nice to them, if you care about them and the path that they're on and you just pay it forward. So I've always aspired to do that. And Stan Hockman taught me that lesson and many others. Um, Peter Gammons is a guy. All right. I got out of college. I thought to myself, I'd really love to write about baseball. I was covering suburban news at the Providence Journal at the time, but um, I was able to not just read Peter Gammons, 
but study Peter Gammons, right? Just read every word he wrote and tried to figure out what makes this so freaking great, <laughs> you know? Like that, that stat he just came up with, how did he find that? Uh, that lead he just wrote, what made him write it that way? Uh, that funny quote he just got, like wh what must he have asked to, to get that quote? Um, wait, he just dropped a, a little feet reference in a baseball story. Um, you know, what, what, what are the rules about connecting baseball to popular culture? And so I, you know, I've told people this all the time when they ask me, what, what's your advice to somebody who wants to do what you do? And that is pick out a couple of people in whatever business you think you want to go in and not, don't just read them or watch them or listen to them study them study everything about them you can learn so much teach yourself so much by doing that and then you know peter's kindness to me and so many young writers uh, is something that's indescribable and just invaluable like when i first got hired to cover the phillies at the philadelphia inquirer peter and i talked every week and um he like, seriously, Jared, he acted like I was the one with all the talent, not him. And he's the greatest who ever did it. <laughs> you know, I tell him all the time, everything that modern baseball writers do, you did first and you did better than all of us, you know, but he never acted like that to me. And I could name a hundred other people just like me. Uh, and so I, you know, I always try to remember him, uh, his humility, his generosity, his kindness, always when I have a chance to, to, to talk with somebody who wants to go up and do what we've been lucky enough to do. So for people who don't know the dynamic at the winter meetings, baseball's winter meetings, baseball fans probably at least have heard of the winter meetings, but it is just a cattle call of anyone and everyone who's got something to do with the game and, you know, in some capacity, whether you're a vendor trying to sell this new snow cone machine or people like yourself and Peter covering the game or like I was back in uh, at the Swan and Dolphin in Orlando. In, <laughs> this was December of 2010, my first ever winter meetings, and I was looking for my first broadcasting job. And you you get some some you know players and agents, and you you, you know you just you turn to your right, and this Hall of Famer is going to be there. You turn to your left, and uh, this Major League Manager is right there. And and I, I I'm sure I came across a number of people who fit that category, but Bobby Brett, who's George Brett's brother, Bobby's son, Bo was a baseball player at USC while I was there. And I got to know Bobby and, and Bobby owns minor league franchises in various sports. He was just taking me around trying to introduce me to people. And I'll never forget when I saw Peter Gammons and, you know, I grew up watching diamond notes, I think is what it was called on, on right. ESPN. And, uh, then, you know, as I learned how to read and uh, learned, I grew an appreciation for that, that, that was always really cool. I don't know why. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I've met a number of people over the two or three winter meetings I've been to who maybe would be more appealing to the average person uh, who's not as ingrained in baseball 
but meeting Peter was, was really neat. And then just to see how he makes the tennis shoes look so stylish, <laughs> the other thing that, uh, that, that I, I took yeah. away from that, but really? that was a really cool moment. Yeah, suit, tie, sneakers. Yeah, exactly. Winter meetings of tie. Because, you know, you just, you're on your feet every single moment of every day at the winter meetings. And it's, we're talking like 16 oh, hours. Yeah. You know, like one of my, when Peter and I worked together at ESPN, one of the things I always knew I had to do was say to him at some point during the day, Peter, when's the last time you ate? have you eaten today <laughs> okay and he'd say no nah, i just haven't had time I, and i would say all right we're going to get you food <laughs> because you know it just you yeah. just get swept along in that event because as you just described jared it's every everyone that you know in baseball everyone you've ever met anywhere in baseball and then like a thousand other people who you kind of know or you sort of recognize or people that you don't know, but they introduce themselves to you. And just incredible, the connections that you make there in addition to having to do all the work and the tweeting and the TV and it's, it's madness. Um, you know, and like I keep alluding to this, this Spink Award I won, yeah. but you know, I was, I won the Spink Award, it was announced at a, at the winter meetings in 2018, December of 2018. And look, it would be cool to get that news anytime, anyplace. Now imagine getting that news when you're in a place where you literally know a thousand people. <laughs> okay. I, all, like I could, easily have just set up camp in the lobby every day and hug people for 12 consecutive hours. You know, all the people who were happy for me. Uh, it was wild. Um, I got no work done at that winter meeting <laughs> at all, but it was really a reminder, you know, you spend your, you spend your life and especially this career building relationships. Then something like that happens in a place like that. It's a reminder of how many relationships you've built if you hang around long enough and you, and you care about building those relationships. And again, Peter, I, th I, I always think I know a lot of people till I'm around Peter at an <laughs> event like that. And he knows every, everyone, yeah. everybody on planet baseball. So in the intro, which, which you didn't hear for this, you know, I, I, I mentioned it's, it's not every day you get a chance to talk to someone in, in any hall of fame and, and people like yourself who have earned that status and, and that, level of achievement don't do it because you've you, you've stayed in one lane and you're only good at one thing it's because you you've developed uh, an ability to do so many different things and and, and I want to ask you in general just what that meant and I know you know we've alluded to uh, the Spink Award but I'm, I'm curious and, and I don't know whether you I, I assume based on what you've said that you you do like that there are a lot of people that come up and talk to you about this part of what you do uh, but you, more than anyone I know, will come up with the nuggets, the the facts, the trivia questions. I mean, gosh, I used to love your Mike and Mike weekly trivia <laughs> question. I would live for that. Uh, but you, you come up with these, you know, these amazing uh, facts and, and, and quirks about baseball. And, and now with all these different numbers available, you know, I'm, I'm sure that that ocean of, of possibility has only <laughs> grown. 
But you – and you mentioned having fun when you talked about Stan Hockman and Peter Gammons. I, I guess I'm just curious, how did you develop that as, as a part of your MO and, and kind of make that your own? Because I do think while it's maybe unfair to corner you as, as well, Jason Starks, the, the, the stats guy who comes up with these courts, because I think, you know, your career, you, you've accomplished so much more. That is a big part of, I think, what people – identify you as a, I guess you know a part of your your strengths or what you what separates yourself and I, I certainly hope that that doesn't come off in, in the wrong way but I guess I'm curious how you develop that as as your mo and, and something that you were clearly passionate about yourself yeah I'm not sure exactly how that happened you know it's funny you mentioned the Mike and Mike trivia questions out because they that was such a fun part of my time at ESPN <laughs> for 10 years uh and I always used to tell people who would talk to me about that. It's 90 seconds out of my week, but I always felt like I was more famous for that than anything I ever accomplished in my career. And I never set out to be the Alex Trebek of baseball. You know, I like, I, I don't know how it happened. The, the whole Mike and Mike trivia thing was a complete fluke. It was an accident because, uh, you know, I used to drop baseball trivia questions into my, rumblings and grumblings columns at ESPN and I would always confer with the producers on like what you know what we should talk about on Mike and Mike because it was going to be seven o'clock in the morning or whatever and so I sent them this column I wrote one day and uh, Greeny was looking at it and he said hey let's take a shot at this trivia question okay so so we I asked them the question on the air they got it wrong they fought about it uh it was hilarious. And as soon as I got finished the segment, the producer said to me, all right, we're going to do that again next week. And then we did it for 10 years. <laughs> Every hey, week for 10 years. Jason, those are my favorite. I, I, I always love a good trivia question. And I don't know like, if you characterize it or classify it as like a list trivia question. But for people who don't know what, what we're talking about, Jason would come on. I, I forget what day of the week. Was it Tuesday? I, I, don't, I don't remember. I, it was Tuesday or Wednesday. Yeah, it, it could shift around a little bit. And and you you you'd offer up a trivia question. It wasn't. I mean, maybe it was every once in a while. The, you know, who's the one person? Blah blah blah. But a lot of times it was, you know, someone was in the news and and Mike Trout just, you know, reached forty home runs. Blah blah blah. By this, who are the other three people to do this? And it was always yeah. like a list. Those are my favorite trivia questions <laughs> where. It's not just one answer. There, there are three or four, and you've got to the strategy behind. Like you, you want to be able to get them all right without an incorrect answer, and the strategy of going through, especially in baseball, you go through division by division, uh, you know, team by team. Was is there someone on this team? But those are those are my all time favorite types. If 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 there's a, a a genre of trivia question, the ones that you would offer up every week, those are my favorite more than the name the one person who did this or that I, the, the list one you're the best <laughs> yeah and um it you know i've kind of I've, I've kind of gotten a knack down for what makes a a trivia question that everybody can get into and it's it's not who led the league in homers in 1933 you know yeah. it's not that it's like what i would do with greenie and golic and this has actually become kind of my trivia niche is I would take something in the news that week. Um, 
like I'll give you an example this week because I just I just tweeted something about Ryan Zimmerman that would have made a perfect Mike and Mike trivia question or actually now do the same questions on NLB Central and NLB yep. Network. Uh, Ryan Zimmerman, 15 years with the Nationals and 1,500 and something games. The, the three, oh wait, four active players who have played only for one team and have played more games for that team than him. You know, and it's... Uh, it's fun. And so here's the thing. Like, you can't have a list of 10. It takes too long. So I usually, I'm usually in that two or three range. But if some of them are so obvious, like Yadi Malita is so obvious on that answer, like you're going to get them within the first five seconds. It's okay to go a little longer, but never more than four. And it always has to be a question that seems just easy enough that you think you should get it, but just hard enough that you're probably not. You're going to miss one. <laughs> you know and uh so it's really a fun gig but you can pass along lots of fun nuggets by doing it and if you do it right it's something to laugh about we have a listener trivia question every week that we select and then we use the question as the inspiration for some fun topic of conversation. That's really what these things should be. And it's what every little nugget should be that I unearth. And I, I honestly can't tell you like why my brain works that way, but for, I don't know how long now I get up every morning and I have a daily logbook that I keep during the season of stuff that interests me, you know, and it's, it, it's not just, trivia it's not just little nuggets and tidbits uh it can be something i think would make a great story idea or a great topic to talk about on mlb network or on our podcast or whatever or to write a story but um keeping that daily log every day forces me to pay attention and because like part of that routine that regimen is watching video so i so everything that happened the night before in baseball i'm familiar with by eight o'clock in the morning or often or even earlier, just watching, thinking, writing it down. I've got like a treasure trove of stuff to look into. And we now live in a world where you can research that stuff. <laughs> it's cool. Uh, baseballreference.com. They have stat head. Now they had the play index for a while. That was life-changing. Uh, Lee Sinnons, who's an, a researcher at MLB network invented the complete baseball encyclopedia life-changing for me. Uh, there's fan graphs now. There's great ways to search for all kinds of stuff. Uh, invaluable. Um, but like back in the day, my buddy Tim Kirkshen and I, every once in a while, once or twice a year, we would, here's what we would do. Like we would, we would brainstorm some of these notes and nuggets. And we would realize the only way to find that is to take a trip through the baseball encyclopedia. Okay. The baseball encyclopedia is like 3000 pages long, but one of the things you'd find in there would be year by year leaders or an alphabetical listing of everybody who ever played baseball. Right. And so I'll give you an example of, of a trip through the encyclopedia that I would take. Okay. I was working at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, I was covering the Phillies. Uh, Von Hayes was a quasi star for the Phillies quasi we'll go with that and one year he got to September 
he'd hit zero homers. He hit like 18 the year before or whatever it was. And so I thought, he was playing every day. I thought, who has ever done this? Gone from being like a guy who was a reasonably productive hitter with power to never hitting a home run. So I called a friend of mine at the Elias Sports Bureau and said, hey, is this something you could research for me out of the goodness of your heart? Because we didn't have a, like I wasn't paying him, right? And uh, he said, well, I don't know. That would require a lot of hours, even just to program uh, the computer to research it. We would have to charge you. So I said, all right, well, just give me an idea how much you would charge me. So he gave me a, a shockingly large amount. <laughs> went to my newspaper, went to my sports editor and said, hey, is there any chance that you would pay the Elias Sports Bureau X amount of dollars to look up this note for me? And they, he said, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> for one note, I'm not doing that. So I went back to this guy and said, yeah, we, we, we can't afford to pay you to do that. He said, well, I, I have to admit something. You, 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 you got my curiosity aroused by this and so i think since it's not going to be we're not going to do it in a time sensitive way or you know because you're not going to pay us like we might look it up uh might take some time but i'll look it up uh and i said but you're not going to tell me he said all right i'll tell you what i'll do <laughs> if you if you do the research on your own i'll tell you if you're right or not Okay, so now I'm thinking, how am I going to dis research whether this this player or any player had e has ever gone from 18 homers to none in a year where he played every day, got X number of plate appearances, whatever. And I thought, the only way I can do this is to go through the encyclopedia. Okay, like year by year, look at every team's roster, look at everybody hit 18 homers or more, and then look at how they did the next year. Okay, so here's how I would do this. All right, team's on the road. I'm not on the trip. I would sit in front of the TV after dinner with the baseball encyclopedia laid out in front of me. And I thought, all right, this is going to be like a three-day journey and go through A to K. <laughs> okay. Or, or 1900 to 1933, whatever. Just go through all those years and see if anybody did it. And then the next night, go through 30 more years or 40 more years. And then the next night, go through 30 or 40 more years until I got to the end. So I went all the way through the baseball encyclopedia. I couldn't find a single other player who'd ever done this. And I thought, God, that can't be right. Somebody had to do this. It's not that weird, is it? It's not that rare. So I called up my friend from the Elias Sports View and said, all right, I spent three days going through the encyclopedia. I can't find anybody else who's ever done this. And he said, yep, you're right. <laughs> so, but like this is, but there was a time when this is how you would have to look up stuff. You can ask Kirkshin. He, he and I were the two people I knew who did it. Um, we used to, uh, back before there was baseball reference, we used to cut out the box scores every day in the newspaper and paste them in a book so we could look up stuff. We could look up whoa, this guy is one for his last 47. You know, you can look up the box scores easily, right? Uh, I stopped doing that. Tim did it until like two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, but there's something about doing all this stuff that makes you pay attention. 
And I'm all about paying attention every day. And if you pay attention, here's what I always tell people about anything. Whatever you're willing to put into something, you'll get back on the other end, right? However much effort, how much work, how much caring you're willing to devote to whatever you're doing, it pays off somewhere on the other end. And that's what I keep telling myself when I get involved in one of these crazy research projects, because I just have to know. Jason, I, I got a, a few more questions, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, we, we, we've talked about the Spink Award. I, I'm just curious what that meant to you uh, and, and what were some, I think when you win awards such as that, not that I've experienced that, but I, I know, you know, getting a, a job or, or achieving something, I think a lot of people will tend to reflect, reflect on the journey, uh, you know, think about various things. So what was it like when you found out you won the award? I know you mentioned at the winter meetings and kind of what the scene was like and what were some of the thoughts that, that popped into your head as, as you thought about, holy crap, I just won this, the, the, you know, our, <laughs> the biggest honor in my field? Yeah, well, all right, I, I knew I was on the ballot. You know, they announced the names on the ballot the previous July. So I had five months of knowing I was on the ballot. And now I get to the winter meetings and arrived on a Saturday the announcement was on Tuesday morning. So I had three days of running into people saying, Oh, you're going to win. You know, you're going to win. Like, I don't, I, I had no idea I was going to win. You know, I was on with two other great candidates. Uh, Jim Reeves covered the covered sports in Texas and mm -hmm. for the, you know, in Fort Worth for many years and was just a great, great guy, great talent, uh, great columnist. I respected Revo highly, right? And then Patrick Royce in Minnesota, uh, longtime columnist, baseball writer turned columnist, turned radio host, and just a giant in Minnesota sports. They both on the, been on the ballot the year before. They both had over 100 votes the year before. I wasn't assuming anything. Why would I do that, right? I, I wasn't sure I would win, but if people kept telling me I would. So now it's starting to get closer. And it's Monday, it's the day before, and I run into my friend Claire Smith, uh, who had won the Spink Award, I want to say two years before. And she said, well, what are you doing tonight? And I said, well, I was going to go out to dinner um, with the Phillies writers, the Phillies people. And she said, well, keep your phone handy, because I'll tell you now that Jack O'Connell from the baseball writers gave me a heads up on Monday night. So I thought, okay, well, that's good to know. It'd be great to get the suspense over with because I was getting really nervous. So now a bunch of us go out to dinner at this really cool place in Las Vegas. And uh, I, I'm having a hard time functioning. You know, I got the phone out, uh, checking constantly, no texts, no emails, no calls, no nothing, no word at all. So I, but I make it through the night, just nervous wreck get back to the, the hotel um, and try to sleep. Tossed and turned all night, couldn't sleep. Just so nervous. Like you, you just can't imagine, right? How nervous, some, how nerve wracking something like that is. Finally just climbed out of bed at six, no texts, no emails, no messages, no direct messages, no missed calls, nothing. Uh, get up. Just, 
bounced off the walls. Finally decided about 7.15, I would go to Starbucks. Okay, just killed time, went to Starbucks, ran into a bunch of people. They all said, oh, you're going to win, you're going to win. I, I still hadn't heard a word. Uh, go back to my room now. I don't know if you know my daughter, Hallie, well, works for Major League Baseball uh, and social media and marketing. She was there. And so my wife said to me, why don't you call her and have her like come at least keep you company? So I said, okay, that's a good idea. So she came up to my room and we were just hanging out. And the meeting is at 10. Now it's 8.30, nothing. It's nine o'clock, nothing. 9.15, haven't heard a word, nothing. And I, I thought, I, like, I guess I didn't win, but we're gonna have to go to that meeting. So I'm just packing up to head for the baseball writers meeting. And all of a sudden the room phone in my room rings. And I don't know about you, Jared, but the only t time the, the, the phone in the room rings now is when it's housekeeping, saying, are you ever going to leave the room so we can clean up, right? <laughs> but instead, it was Jack O'Connell, and he said, Jason, oh, my God, thank God you answered. Uh, I went to call you, and I realized I don't have your cell. <laughs> right? So we laughed about that, and then he said, oh, by the way, this is what they know in the trade as the call. Congratulations. And Jared, I can't tell you what an emotional moment that was. Um, you know, even if I would thought about it, uh, people kept telling me I was going to win it, um, dreamed about what it would feel like, imagined what it would feel like. It was overwhelming to hear those words. And you know, my daughter was there. She was... Uh, taking some video to show the family. Then we, you know, we FaceTimed uh, my wife, my other kids um, was unbelievable, incredible. Uh, and then that just kind of began this, you know, we, we, we laughed by calling it, you know, like the summer of George, the summer of Jason, you know, just for the next seven months, it never stopped. It never, ever stopped. And, um, you know, just I, like I talked early on about building relationships or people like Tyler Kepner, who I've helped. It was incredible. All the people who reached out to me who said, you know, you're, you've always been my favorite baseball writer or, you know, you've, you've been the biggest influence on me of anyone or you, you, you helped me this way or that way. Or once, you know, I, I met you at the winter meetings and you were nice to me. Just a, it just, that just went on for seven months. And then we got to Cooperstown. And we had over a hundred friends and family come just for me. Like that's, that wasn't just baseball people, people I knew in the sport, fellow writers or other players or like, it, these were just family and friends who came there for me. They told me at the hall, more people came for you than anyone else here. And you know more people, you directly know more people here than anyone else because you, you know all these people on all these teams and all these players and then you have all these family and friends. So just that part was overwhelming, just the memories for a lifetime, not just for me, but for all those people who came there for me and who we love and care about it was unreal. And then just the way I was treated by the greatest players on earth, I will never forget from the, the moment that Wade Boggs walked up to me in the Otisaga Hotel on Thursday and said, Welcome to the club. That's how they all treated me, like I was one of them. 
despite the fact I'd saved 652 fewer games in Mariano. They treated <laughs> me like that from beginning to end. And that was incredible. Uh, I, you know, the, the, the Spink Award winner gets to give his, his or her speech on Saturday afternoon. The players are inducted on Sunday. And so we gather in a room in the Otisaga Hotel. I was pretty much the first one there. I wasn't going to be late for my own speech. <laughs> okay. So just sitting around with Tim Mead and the PR people from the Hall of Fame. Then players started to filter in. Ken Griffey came in. He sat down with us. You, you know, just, you're just kind of chatting away. And then all of a sudden, Jared, I looked up, looked around, and realized who was in the room. The greatest players who ever lived were in this room. All the legends of baseball were in this room. And also I was there. Okay. And I, for a second, I honestly, I could not breathe. So I got up and I kind of went to a corner of the room and looked around and thought, holy crap. <laughs> and I thought, all right, I got to breathe. I got I to I, I take a walk. So, I walk, so I'm going to walk down the, the hall to the men's room just to breathe in and out. And next thing I know, Jeff Bagwell is walking alongside of me. And he said to me, how are you doing? And I said, Jeff, I'm, I'm doing okay, but I have to be honest. I'm looking around that room and thinking, what am I doing in that room? And he said, oh, yeah, me too. I said, wait, you too. You realize you're a Hall of Famer, right? And he said, oh, I know, but I don't think of myself as a Hall of Famer the way those guys are Hall of Famers. And that really helped me. That really relaxed me to know that even players think that. And then I got on the bus to to go give my speech, and I, I like I didn't know where even where I didn't know where to sit. I didn't know where. To, <laughs> and I'm looking at this bus, and it's just living legends. Who who should I sit with? And Jim Tomey is sitting there, and he's got an empty seat next to him, and he pats it, just like that, and he go just like to say, "Come sit with me," right? So he's just a wonderful man, as you know, and we're riding to the ceremony and he just giving me advice, talking me down, helping me relax. And I said to him, Jim, I got a question for you. You know, people tell you, don't look at your family. That's too hard. It's too emotional. You lose it. Don't do that. Did you look at your family? He said, oh yeah, absolutely. You've got to do that. That's what it's all about. Like those people sharing it with those people, that's the meaning of the moment. You have to do that. Okay. So such great advice because I looked into the eyes of my wife, my kids, my mother-in-law, my, my humongous family that was there. And I looked every one of them right in the eyes as I talked about them. And I'll never forget the look on their faces as they're looking at the look on my face Given that speech, it was just the whole thing. Like, I don't want to go on for an hour, but the whole thing was just one of those experiences and one of those memories that you never imagined could ever happen to you. But then it happened in your actual life. And like, I'll never forget anything about it. That's amazing. And, and congratulations. Uh, it, it is Thank really you. cool. And, and I know some people will deflect because they just feel more comfortable doing so, but it, it, it's clear in hearing you talk about this, how much you appreciated that moment. It's, it's really cool to hear. And I appreciate you sharing 
That's all I ever wanted to do, remember? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. It's amazing. Uh, all right. So I, I, maybe another time we'll, we'll get through uh, some of the amazing <laughs> stories. I do want to ask you one, and, and I'll tell people whichever. I'll let you choose which one you want to tell, and I'll tell people that until we get part two with Jason, <laughs> be sure to look up the other one. But one involves getting punched by Dick Knowles. The other one involves a, a Frenchman in Wrigley Field. You got to look up whichever one Jason does not tell. And, and I don't want to ask you to tell them both because you've given me way more than I already asked for time-wise. But wait, pick, take a pick. And, and I'd love if you don't mind sharing at least one of those stories. Uh, well, I mean, one of them, one of them is really funny, hilarious. Uh, one of the funniest things I've ever written about, uh, the Frenchman. And the other thing was a, just a crazy moment on, you know, on the beat that actually had a, like, just a poetic ending because I won the Spink Award. So you pick, which, which of those best fits the tenor of this conversation? Let's, let's go, let's go funny. I, I, I wanna hear the, the, the French, okay. I mean, I've read it, but I, I want, I'd love for you to share the Frenchman story. Uh, all right. I don't, I can't remember what year this was, uh, 97, something like that. Sammy Soso was in his Cubs heyday. I'm still working at the Inquirer in Philadelphia. And Sammy Sosa hits a, a home run off Paul Wilson of the Mets, former number one pick in the country, right? And it goes out of the park, over the bleachers, sails across Waveland Avenue, and crashes through the window of one of the apartment buildings across the street. Goes right through the window. Bam. Like, this is epic video. I'm sure you can still find the video of this thing somewhere. So, being that guy that wrote all the funny stuff that happened in baseball, what do I say to myself? Got to find the guy who lives there or the, or the family who lives there or whatever. Now this was not that easy, but um, it took a couple of days, but I had a little help, but I got the name of the person who lived in that apartment where the baseball went through the window. And it was this guy named Philippe, we show. Okay. So I get his number and I start calling and eventually he picks up. So I introduce my, myself. I'm Jason Stark. I write kind of a humorous baseball column at the Philadelphia Inquirer. You had a home run go through your window. Just curious what you thought. All right. So this turns out this guy, Philippe Guichot, spent his whole life in France. He wasn't just a Frenchman. He was literally a Frenchman. He lived his whole life in France. He moves to Chicago and he finds an apartment across the street from Wrigley Field. And he has no idea what really goes on across the street. No idea about the Cubs or the Curse or Sammy Sosa or anything. And he comes home from work one day and there's a baseball lying on his, just sitting there on his living room floor. And he's got a broken window and he thinks to himself, how did this happen? <laughs> so, so he tells me this whole story in exhaustive detail. And uh, finally I said to him, so Philippe, you didn't know anything about baseball? No, I do not follow the baseball. Uh, like he, he literally did not know. He's from France. He didn't know a, a baseball from a beach ball. You know, he, like he knew more about croissants than baseball. 
and he lived across the street from Wrigley Field. I said, so, like, did you, like, when you rented this apartment across from this field, what did you think? Didn't you think to yourself someday that something like this could happen? He said, oh, no, no, no. He said, I knew the apartment was across from the field. I just did not know that baseballs would ever leave the field. Okay. <laughs> 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 he literally did not know this. And so, like, this, this story became, like, one of the most memorable most laugh out loud moments in my life covering baseball. And I, I struck up a friendship with this guy and I stayed in touch with him for years. And I would call him every once in a while about goofy stuff. And that would happen at Wrigley and home runs that would hit that building. And he was a really, really sweet guy who just never cared about baseball, never even went into Wrigley. Okay, but we, he was my go-to Wrigley Field home run comedian for years because he came home from work one day and there was this baseball sitting in his living room. But it's just like one of those things where if you think to yourself, what would be the funniest thing I could story I could write from this moment? And then you're enough of a reporter to know how to track down a guy who lives there. And then it turns out the guy knows nothing about anything that led up to not just his baseball <laughs> sitting in his living room, but anything about baseball period for a hundred years. Like that, that's a moment that when you do what I do for a living, what we do for a living, it's so rewarding that this guy got mentioned in my hall of fame speech because how could he not i live for stuff like that jared i still do <laughs>